Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. I'm Charles Pryor, and you're listening to New Books in British Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. When the British explored the Atlantic coast of America in the 1580s, their relations with indigenous peoples were structured by food. The newcomers, unable to sustain themselves through agriculture, relied on the local Algonquian people for resources. This led to tension and then to violence. When English raiding parties struck Algonquian villages, they destroyed crops and raided food stores. According to English sources, all of this was provoked by the theft of a silver drinking cup, perhaps offered to an Algonquian visitor and understood as a gift of hospitality, a token of a new relationship of equals. For the historian, episodes like this are challenging to explain. We need to treat dismissals of indigenous peoples as inferior with much greater skepticism. And we need to recover the intentions of peoples whose actions were interpreted and distorted by observers who left the historical records that we as historians privilege as sources. Rachel Herman is lecturer in modern American history at Cardiff University. In No Useless Mouth, Waging War and Fighting Hunger in the American Revolution, she provides a powerfully original examination of how food and hunger structured relations of power in the revolutionary period. The book, which will be published by Cornell this autumn, ranges widely from the villages of Iroquois to the lands of the Cherokee and along routes taken by Africans to Canada and Sierra Leone. It is a feast prepared with skill and served with considerable flair. It's a pleasure, Rachel, to welcome you to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Charles. I'm really pleased to be here. Great. So I want to begin by talking about how you uh, researched this book. Um, In your acknowledgments and elsewhere uh, in the text, you recall places that you traveled to, you thank friends and colleagues. Uh, And you anchor every step of the research in writing in some sort of food experience. So what led you to this topic in the first place? It really all started when I was an undergraduate taking a class on colonial American history. I ended up writing a very short essay about the starving time in Jamestown. And that made me realize how much I enjoyed writing about food. And I ended up writing a senior thesis on culinary nationalism after the American Revolution in the early Republic. And that's what I thought that's what I thought I wanted to write about in graduate school. But the thing about graduate programs is in the United States and probably graduate programs in the United Kingdom as well is that the whole point of your first year is illustrating to you how little you know. So I got to graduate school thinking that I wanted to talk about American culinary nationalism, and it became apparent how little I knew about the colonial period still. And so I went further back in time, revisited the starving time in Jamestown, 
spent a little bit of time writing about cannibalism for my master's. Um, that became my first article. And I realized I didn't want to write a whole book, a whole monograph about cannibalism. But what I did discover is that I am interested in the absence of food and how the absence of food tests power relationships. So really, this became a dissertation about food that then became a book about food's absence and how that absence tested, reforged, and created new power relationships. So that's sort of how I came to the topic. Um, how I came to the sources is that I'm an archive rat. I love looking at primary sources. There's probably two different ways to approach a historical project. One is to start with the historiography and then pursue the primary sources. And the other is to start the primary sources and figure out your argument later. And that's what I did. So you, you mentioned you're an archive rat. Um, what were, where did you go? Uh, the book, the book gives uh, uh, a sort of an itinerary of where you went, but could you just sort of describe the, the process of traveling to archives and why did you revisit archives when so much of our material is available in modern printed editions, microfilm online? Why did you go straight back to those sources? I went straight back to the sources because that was a foundational tenet of my undergraduate degree. Um, we were taught to go directly to the source. This was an idea that the early historian Lucy Maynard Salmon promoted. But I also was fairly convinced that when those edited documents, um, like the documents of the American Revolution, like the papers of Henry Lawrence, um, to an extent like the Johnson papers, I didn't think that editors were necessarily interested in food. And so I was worried that they weren't including documents that dealt with hunger or food supply as extensively as the manuscript record would demonstrate. So I had done some exploratory research trips for the MA, um, which I don't think I talk about in the book's bibliographic notes. Um, but my first archival research trip um, was to Cambridge and then London. I stayed in this hostel um, close to the British Museum um, where there were three bunk beds next to three bunk beds next to three bunk beds. So you slept in a nine-person pod and crawled into the pod and closed your curtains at night and people would come in and turn on the lights at four in the morning and then I'd head to the library at nine. Um, so it was very cheap. Um, <laughs> very, very visceral researching experience as an MA student. Um, I became, I began in earnest um, probably the following year. Um, first, with a research trip to Ottawa. And that's where I started looking at transcripts of more documents that were in the British Library so that I had a sense of what to look for. That really became chapters one and two, um, which are about pre-revolutionary diplomatic practices like hosting feasts at meetings to agree land sessions or treating food as both a gift and a trade good. Um, and then some of the other sources in Ottawa um, dealt with formerly enslaved Black colonists who went to Nova Scotia um, and then Sierra Leone, and that's what became Chapter 6 um, and Chapter 8, um, which deal first with the Nova Scotia section 
um, of space and then Sierra Leone. So the way I started my research was not, I didn't know it at the time, but I was starting with what became the beginning and the end of the book. Mm -hmm. And that meant I had a sense of where I was beginning and where I was going. And yes, food is deeply wrapped up in archival visits. Um, it's not, I think research can be isolating and lonely at the same time that it's thrilling and fun and stopping in the middle of the day to have lunch, looking forward to dinner at the end of the day, um, meeting people who are researching similar documents or people who are researching totally different documents but similar themes. Um, it's much easier to have discussions about how that research is unfolding when you're sharing food together. Yeah, you definitely painted uh, a picture of the upsides and downsides of, of graduate level research. So any PhD students who are listening in can take heart uh, that they will find friends, even though they're staying in grim conditions. So when does it come to you then uh, that uh, you, you, you mentioned you were you, at the very outset that food, hunger are a way into understanding relationships of power. Uh, when does it come to you that hunger is a very, very powerful historical lens? And when do you decide to use that centrally as a, as a historical lens? I think I knew that food was important in forging power relationships much earlier than I realized how important hunger was important in forging power relationships. And I knew that because as a graduate student, I read works by authors like Psyche Williams Forson, who has a great book on um, Black women, chicken, and power. Um, Sidney Mintz wrote one of the first sort of single commodity studies um, on sugar that's called sweetness and power. So historians, food studies scholars have been thinking about power for a long time and had been thinking about it for a long time, long before I started. I don't think I really thought as carefully about hunger and power until I started revising the dissertation into a book because I knew that I wanted to turn it from a project on food into one about hunger. And those two things are related, um, but not entirely the same. And one of the things that informed my thinking was this contemporary idea of hangriness. I don't know if you're familiar with hangriness. So hangriness is the concept of being hungry and angry at the same time. It's sort of a colloquial term. Um, I am famous in my household for being hangry. Um, I'm not, I'm not very pleasant. I'm quite unpleasant to be around when I'm not being fed regularly um, and in large quantities. Um, but I sort of, it wasn't, a, I don't think it was an epiphany movement, moment. It was a, a gradual realization that that's not how 18th century people experienced hunger. And there was work that dealt with the 19th century and hunger. There was work that dealt with the 20th century and hunger. 
And that historiography made it seem like hunger prevention was this modern invention. And that, to me, minimized the extensive history of Native American hunger prevention efforts, the extensive um, agriculture and um, hunting that they undertook to sustain their communities, the profoundly gendered divisions of that work um, that went unrecognized because European colonists were very uncomfortable with the idea of Native American women doing the farming. Um, So I sort of started thinking about how I might categorize hunger across time and space. And as I started to do that, it became clearer and clearer that non-Native observers were mischaracterizing hunger and that it was something that merited more skepticism than I was used to seeing in interpretations of it, particularly for the mid to late 18th century. Right. So I want to pick pick up right there on this notion of mischaracterization. There's a a big theme that um, runs through the book is this notion that uh, colonial observers misremember, uh, distort, gloss, uh, whatever you want to call it, uh, the history and particularly the history of their own sort of prosperity and, and place in relationship to Native Americans. Um, They're really terrible. <laughs> yes. They, and I suppose, you know, we have the, the first Thanksgiving is, 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 a, is a prime example of this sort of mangling of the historical past. But I mean, how is the colonial past misremembered even by the people who are, who are supposedly right in it? The colonial past is misremembered in that, oh, U.S. officials after the American Revolution kind of collapse the distinction between British colonists and American colonists to act as if they all have one shared past. They project ideas about whiteness back onto a time period before ideas about race had fully solidified. And most importantly, they say that when those colonists first came to North America, they immediately began to till the ground and to sustain themselves, which is, it's patently untrue. Um, If we want to start with the English, which we probably shouldn't do because the Spanish and the French um, were in North America before the English. Um, So actually we could start with them and talk about failed colonization attempts, um, the violence of the Cabeza de Vaca or the DeSoto expeditions, their kidnapping of native guides um, who they hoped would be able to take them to food stores. Um, By the time we get to the period in the 1580s that you opened with, by the time we get to permanent colonization um, in Jamestown, English colonists still don't know how to plan for long-term survival in North America. They are very dependent on the Powhatans um, for corn, for venison. Um, And when those supplies are withdrawn because colonists behave poorly, um, English colonists die. So I open this book with this misremembering of history, of that history, um, by a U.S. official named Timothy Pickering, because it's it's just so wrong. So the when we when we turn it back around, I mean, um, 
historians of, of Native America now are, are presenting us with a view of the indigenous continent where indigenous power uh, far exceeds uh, colonial power. Um, but nevertheless, uh, despite the, the weakness of the colonists, they're drawn in um, into indigenous networks of trade, sometimes into indigenous networks of kinship, uh, and certainly uh, into indigenous networks of food and diplomacy. So where, what's the relationship, first of all, between food and diplomatic relations? And we'll get to war in a second. By the time of the American Revolution, by the time of, the, so historians distinguish between the American Revolutionary War and the War for Independence and the American Revolution. So usually the Revolutionary War, War for Independence is about 1785, or seven, excuse me, 1775 or 1776 to 1783. Um, and the American Revolution can sort of start in the 1750s and go up until the 1830s. And I would say that up until the broad period of the American Revolution, there are lots of diplomatic practices in existence that have been shaped by interaction between natives and non-natives, but have been largely native-led. And there are a number of events that happen in the 1750s and the 1760s that interfere with those diplomatic customs, um, like the exchange of trade goods, like the fixing of prices for the fur trade. Um, this happens as a result of restrictions introduced by Sir Geoffrey Amherst. And what this means is that by the eve of the American Revolutionary War, food is set to increase in importance as a diplomatic item. And it's set to increase in importance as a diplomatic item because it is and isn't like a trade good. It can be sold and it can be exchanged, but unlike trade goods, foodstuffs are something that um, Iroquois, Creek, Cherokee women produce rather than just something that communities receive. And because it's something that Native communities can produce, they are in as strong a position, and sometimes indeed a stronger position, than the Europeans with whom they are negotiating. This also means that when Native Americans talk about the absence of food, there are lots of diplomatic ways of doing that. So it's very common to describe yourself as starving. That doesn't necessarily mean that you're actually starving. It might mean that you are trying to make your host um, avoid seeming too ostentatious by giving you a gift of food. Um, so uh, diplomatic food practices um, include hosting major feasts, but they also include giving symbolic gifts that no one needs to major Native leaders. Um, it also, though, means that when Native allies go to war with European ranger units, they come with their own provisions because women have supplied them. And that helps diplomacy because it means that European soldiers 
remain able to supply themselves for longer periods of time. And that improves mm-hmm. relations too. So the, they, the, then the, 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 the shift towards conflict, uh, there's lots of examples in the 17th century um, recorded by colonial observers where uh, Indian war parties suddenly appear uh, and slaughter livestock, destroy crops, and then vanish again. Um, how was, and this is something that you actually connect with other imperial contexts uh, here in, in the British Isles, in fact. Um, how How is... How is food and food supplies, how, are, how do they become targets of war? I think they've always been targets of war, but I think the people doing the targeting have changed over time. Um, when I started thinking about this book, I was thinking a lot about the food histories I had read. I was thinking a lot about how podcasts like The Splendid Table were talking about food. And and it seemed to me that usually ordinary consumers of food culture, food, food pop culture, were operating on the assumption that food brings people together and makes everyone feel warm and fuzzy. And I knew that when I wrote this book, I wanted a way to talk about those warm and fuzzy moments. But I also knew that I had to talk about violence um, because I don't really think that they are separable from each other. Um, When I was in graduate school, we were reading sort of anthropological theorists um, who were interested in the line between food as symbol, um, people like Claude Levi-Strauss, um, and food is a practical form of sustenance, like Marvin Harris, who wrote really interesting things about pigs, um, about cannibalism, um, about milk. Um, and for me, I thought it had to have both a practical and symbolic and an accommodating and violent angle. So I realized that I needed a third way of talking about food and hunger. Um, And I ended up coming up with this model where food diplomacy is one end of the spectrum of accommodation and violence and what I call vital warfare or the destruction of crops and animals is at the other end. Um, And then in the middle of the spectrum, which is sometimes accommodating and sometimes violent behavior, um, is what I call vital imperialism, which is interfering with people's food production methods as a way of taking land. And what I found in this sort of change over time is that um, American colonists, British colonists, had been waging what I call little warfare against the Irish, against Native Americans throughout the colonial period, um, but that by the 18th century, it was considered um, bad warfare practice to destroy foodstuffs of people who were not native. So it was sort of something that changed um, in terms of how people theorized it. Um, 
and people stopped practicing it for the most part against other Europeans, but continued to practice it against Native Americans. Um, what I then found is that gradually food diplomacy became more and more like middle imperialism. So by the 1790s, early 1800s, um, this food diplomacy that the U.S. Uh, agents had to learn from their British predecessors, and they had to learn by listening to Iroquois Creek and Cherokee um, people, they've taken this diplomacy and they've managed to seize control of it and they've managed to turn it into middle imperialism. And they've managed to do that by manipulating history to claim that they were better at hunger prevention than Native Americans and better um, than formerly enslaved people, which is what happens in the Nova Scotia and Sierra Leone cases. So <clears throat> in terms of the, I mean, the, the, that's one striking thing about the, the book is, is that it, it not only provides a, a really deft uh, treatment of the sort of the interface between colonists and various Native American peoples in Iroquois and, and the South, but it also adds the dimension um, that you've alluded to a couple of times of uh, freed slaves, slaves that went to the British side. Um, at what point did you decide to to put that those pieces of the narrative together? Because they they, they sometimes, not all the times, but they they, they sometimes are treated uh, in isolation. Um, how does hu hunger help us to sort of bring them back together? Well. I want to say that I'm certainly not the first to consider these different groups in tandem with each other. Um, Maya Jasnoff writing about the Loyalists um, and the Loyalist diaspora has done this. Um, I think my work is a little different because I don't think I would call Black colonists Loyalists um, until probably they got to Sierra Leone. That's really when they started to describe themselves as British subjects, which is, I think, an important consideration for definitions of loyalism. Um, and similarly, I don't think I would describe Native American allies as loyalists. I think I would describe them as American allied or British allied. Um, but I will say putting them together was important for me because I started the dissertation, like I said, I started the dissertation mostly by starting with the primary sources and then thinking secondarily about the historiography. And I was curious about the ways that looking in food and hunger might challenge extant historiographical narratives. So for the Black Loyalists, um, I realized that the narrative about their time in Nova Scotia focused primarily on land. And that seemed an important parallel with the history of Native Americans, where we talk about land grabs, where we talk about land sessions, where we talk about a longer history of treaties and treaty making. But in both cases, it seemed to me that the things that were happening with food changed that narrative a bit. So land issues for the Black colonists in Nova Scotia really became an issue only after white colonists started passing food laws that made it 
more difficult to produce and obtain food in land scarce environments. And the uh, American, uh, the US context, it became clear to me that it was this um, vital imperialistic policy of interfering with native crop production methods um, that made it possible for the United States to take land by treaty. So uh, in both cases, I think looking at food adjusts what we've said about um, battles over land. I think looking at food and hunger helps us to rethink the claims that scholars have made about the American Revolution as a period of decline in Indian country. Um, And to be clear, I absolutely believe that the Revolutionary War was disruptive and deadly for Native communities. The 1779 Sullivan campaign against the Iroquois created a refugee crisis um, and hundreds of Haudenosaunee people died. But I also have evidence of the Iroquois during that same period destroying foodstuffs and destroying the foodstuffs of their allies during a time of refugee crisis and during a time when people were describing those Native Americans as starving. Um, And so I've sort of reinterpreted this declension narrative to try to highlight what I see as moments of resurgence in Iroquois power and to push that declension narrative later to the 1790s when the United States has sort of begun to implement this vital imperialistic policy. The 1780s are this time where the U.S. government is, for one thing, fighting with state governments over who has the right to negotiate with Native Americans and demand land sessions. And then it's also a moment when the United States tries to demand land sessions and they get laughed at because they don't actually have the power to do so and they don't have the money to raise an army and they don't have the money for diplomacy if they want to try and be diplomatic about it. Um, so looking at food and hunger um, reinterprets that period as well. And I think lastly, the last thing I'll say is that. There is a fight against hunger um, that happens, and it revealed to me that fighting hunger, preventing hunger, are maybe 19th and 20th century questions and concerns after all. And that if we broaden our study of hunger to think about how people created hunger, to think about how they endured it, to think about how they mischaracterized it, then we get a better, fuller picture of what was happening on the ground in the 18th and early 19th centuries. There's a there's a lot there's a lot there in terms of uh, where the historical narratives fit together. Um, The the book does make a a very very ordered series of sort of interventions in periodization and chronology, as you've mentioned, moving the declension narrative back. And I kind of want to get us to step back um, and ask the question that we sometimes ask of students, which is the, the so what 
part. Um, how do things look different as a result? And you sort of alluded to this, but what's striking about the book is that you use your conclusion uh, not simply to sum up the argument, but to point your your readers uh, to explore new avenues related to food and hunger specifically, but also to talk about the asymmetry of power, uh, the presence of violence, of, of conquest, uh, that that is really uh, right through uh, the American historical experience. Um, but the popular view of this period is, is pretty different. Uh, the popular view of, of, of the the colonization of America uh, all the way through the West is one of uh, agricultural prosperity um, and, uh, you know, the development of civil society and, and what have you. Are we still contending with really strong foundational myths when we, when we confront this past? Absolutely. We're contending with the myth of the first Thanksgiving. We're contending with the, the myth that Jamestown was the birthplace of America. We're contending with this myth of self-sufficient European colonists thriving in North America. And in all of those cases, the United States needs to reckon with the fact that this was a continent that was primarily not white, not European, and that the Europeans who were present were not just English, they were Spanish, they were French, they were Dutch, they were Swedish, um, and they were predominantly at a disadvantage against much more powerfully established Native Americans. Similarly, I think the people in Great Britain are still reckoning with this question of empire and engaging in a debate that we don't need to engage in about whether it was good or bad. But, or maybe I, I, I should just be explicit and say, um, I think most historians agree that empire was destructive and manipulative and not as rosy as contemporary commentators today would like to say it was. So I think looking at hunger and how people deal with it, how people dealt with it, allows us fundamentally to see how people lied about it in the past to forge their own national creation stories. And they're absolutely still foundational. Um, there is something about food and feasting, as I said, that makes people feel good. But anyone who's been to a, a fraught family meal knows that feasting is always um, potentially disastrous as well. And I think we just need to talk more about how the contests over food and discussions about hunger allowed nations to lie about their pasts. Wow. Um, so that's, I, I hate to ask this question to, to, to someone who's just finished a book, um, but 
I, I have to ask it because I, I'm interested in, and that is, um, what next? Uh, what what what's the next topic? Where where are you going after after this is published? Um, I'm working on a couple things. One of the things I will say though is that I think this project would look a lot different if I were to start it today. I think this project um, would be much more doable online and digitally because of the sort of outpouring of digital history projects like the papers of the War Department, um, like the Internet Archive, um, like Southeastern Native American documents. Um, And so before I talk about what's next, um, I was curious about your work on treated spaces, which is also engaging in these sort of digitization projects. Um, Because as I think about what's next, I want to hear about digital initiatives that might make some of those future projects easier for me. Okay, well, uh, thanks for the opportunity to, to, to allow me to talk about that. Uh, basically, um, we're very interested in using digital platforms to uh, bring uh, some aspects of this past uh, to life again for audiences that uh, don't know much about it. Um, there are uh, large collections of treaty documents that were published. Uh, there's the big early American Indian documents collection that was edited by Alden Vaughn, um, but it's scarce and expensive. Um, there are only three sets of those volumes, I think, in the UK. Um, and the, as you know, uh, so much of what goes on in diplomacy is uh, things that happened outside of the the formal treaty document is the long protracted council. So what we're trying to do is to recreate some of that uh, by uh, re-recording or recording um, aspects of traditional Iroquoian council speech and ritual. Uh, Rhetoric and speech was as important uh, to the Iroquois, it was to the ancient Romans, um, and there was a particular way of speaking politically and in public, so we're going to do that. Um, we want to create learning resources that make uh, treaty texts and contextual documents available to broader publics uh, in the hope that teachers here in the United Kingdom uh, begin to consider them uh, as alternatives to the sort of rootin' tootin' shootin' histories of the American West uh, that are that are given, um, and the other thing that we're we're doing is we're trying to recenter the British Crown uh, in this story because uh, the the Crown enters the Covenant chain with the Iroquois in 1677, and the Queen still receives diplomatic uh, visits from First Nations peoples uh, from Canada to this day. So there's a there's a whole r- range of things that we can do uh, to create a a sort of a, a new um, a new a series of roots into this past that people uh, don't know about. That sounds great. I mean, it makes you think that we've been talking about food, we've been talking about hunger. These are sensory ways of thinking about the past. Um, You're talking about sound, which is another important component that 
is sometimes challenging to recover, but it sounds like you're really thinking about how to do that in a way that um, tries to work with Native communities. Yeah, um, it's 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 important to that that involvement is central to what we're doing. Uh, this is not uh, an, an effort to uh, relate uh, their history uh, to them, but to uh, invite uh, our Native collaborators to help us to uh, bring their history to us. Uh, so it, it goes both ways. And I think another thing that we might mention is the material culture that's available. Um, there are lots of things uh, around. We, there is There are wampum belts in the UK. There are calumets or peace pipes. Uh, there's, there's all sorts of material culture and there's, there's many roots back into this past. And I think um, I think the linking sort of concern that we have is to take uh, things that people really haven't thought about carefully enough and to use them as a new way to go back to this past and then ask some new questions about it. That sounds great. Right. So um, I'm not sure who's interviewing who anymore, uh, but thank you so much for your time. I've been speaking to Rachel Herman, who's lecturer of Modern American History at Cardiff University. Her book, No Useless Mouth, Waging War and Fighting Hunger in the American Revolution, is going to be published in November by Cornell University Press, and it is going to be open access, so it can be read by lots of people. Everybody should go out, pre-order it, uh, and bookmark it. Thank you, Rachel, for taking the time to talk to me. My pleasure, Charles. 